in partnership with George Barna, Arizona Christian University, just released its annual American Worldview Inventory. The results? Uh, The results were very disappointing. Discouraging. Disheartening. Out of 176 million Americans who identify themselves as Christians, just 6% hold a recognizably Christian worldview. Now, Barna calls those who subscribe to a Christian worldview integrated disciples. Here's some good news about the beliefs of integrated disciples. 99% believe the Bible's the Word of God. 99% believe God's the all-knowing, all-powerful, and just creator of the universe, and he still rules today. 88% believe God has a reason for everything. That's good news. Uh, But let me share some news that isn't so good. These stats that I'm going to share are from those who are integrated disciples. The 6% who have a Christian worldview. 25% say there's no absolute moral truth. 33% subscribe to karma. 52% believe people are basically good. And 39% contend the Holy Spirit is not a real living being, but is merely a symbol of God's power, presence, or purity. In a recent Breakpoint podcast, John Stone Street calls this last finding the most troubling part of the survey. I agree, because the Bible is clear. The Holy Spirit is a who, not a what. He is a he, not an it or a force. The Holy Spirit's the third member of the Trinity. He convicts of sin. He's our promised helper, teacher, sanctifier, comforter, and counselor. Friends, there is no way to understand the book of Acts without recognizing the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, some commentators refer to the book this way. They give it this title, The Acts of the Holy Spirit. Why? Well, there are 55 references to the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts alone. And because you and I have the Holy Spirit, we can now live on mission according to the mandate given to us, Acts 1 verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We've seen that through our study of the book of Acts. Now, I'd like to draw our attention to a statement made by the enemies of the gospel as they referred to the missionary team. If you have your Bible with you, and I hope you do, there's one in front of you. I'd love for you to put your hands on a Bible and open it up so your eyes see it, or feel free to use your mobile device. Let me draw our attention to Acts 17, verse 6. These men who have turned the world upside down. That's quite a statement, isn't it? I mean, this small team is credited with turning the entire world upside down. 
Now, I'm afraid instead of turning our world upside down for Christ, many American Christians have allowed the world to turn them upside down. I mean, this no doubt explains our limited impact in our culture today. It was Vance Havner who said, we are not going to move this world by criticism of it. That's easy, right? Nor conformity to it. Well, how are we going to move this world? By the combustion within it of lives ignited by the Spirit of God. Last weekend, we celebrated how God uses many different methods to get his message out. We were in Acts chapter 16, and we focused on how God reached a religious woman named Lydia. We also looked at how God reached a trafficked teenager, and then we ended by focusing on how God reached a regular guy, the jailer, in Acts chapter 16. Well, today we're in the first part of Acts 17. We're going to be challenged with this truth. To turn the world upside down, the Word must first turn us inside out. By the way, I'll be out of town next weekend. I'll be at a Keep Believing Ministries retreat with Ray Pritchard, and I've asked Reverend Justin Rumley to preach. Justin grew up here at Edgewood. He was in Awana, graduated from Moody with both an undergraduate and master's degree. He's currently pastoring in Kiwani and serves as the spiritual life director and Bible teacher at Peoria Christian School. In August, we had the joy of ordaining Justin. Brothers and sisters, we have two primary roles if we hope to turn the world upside down with the gospel. First, we've got to be ready to explain the Word. And secondly, we need to be a people who examine the Word. Well, let's pick it up. Acts 17, verse 1. We discover where the team landed. Remember, they had just been in Philippi, verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So they traveled on the Via Ignatia. That's like a Roman highway. And they passed through two towns in order to land in Thessalonica. Let's look then at our first role. Explain the word. Let's ponder verses 2 and 3. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Paul's strategy was to find key cities. When he got there, he went into the synagogue and he preached the gospel. There are four key elements that we see in his approach. First, he reasoned from the scriptures. He likely used the Socratic method named after Socrates where he was asking and answering questions. Secondly, he explained. I love that word. It means to open what was closed to unroll. Paul took the time to make sure his listeners understood what he was saying. Well, he's doing what Jesus did when he opened the scriptures. Remember, there's two disciples walking on the road. They're headed to Emmaus. They turn to each other and they say this, Luke 24, 32, did not our hearts burn within us while we walked on the road? 
while he, referring to Jesus, opened to us the Scriptures. Thirdly, they prove. The word prove means to set forth arguments by laying evidence before someone. So here, Paul is presenting compelling evidence for how Jesus Christ fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament. Are you aware there are some 300 specific prophecies in the Old Testament written hundreds, in some cases thousands of years before Jesus lived? Now, I don't know what prophecies he went to, but likely he was in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 to establish that it was necessary for Jesus to both suffer and to rise from the dead. Notice, fourthly, he proclaimed, meaning he declared it loudly and plainly. What did he proclaim? That Jesus is the one promised by the prophets He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. Now, verse 4 tells us that many received the message. We read, and some of them were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and a few of the leading women. The word persuaded means to be convinced. So there were some Jews, along with like a throng of Greeks, many leading women who believed and were reminded again That the gospel is for Jew and Greek. It's for the religious and the non-religious. It's for men and women, all races, all generations. Verses 5 through 9 reveal there were others who rejected the message. Oh, you see that throughout the book of Acts. Some receive it. Others are like, no way. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob They set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, because they bolted, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men, here's the phrase again, who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So, so many Jewish background people are becoming believers in Jesus as Messiah, and the Jewish leaders are jealous. So what do they do? They recruit some rabble to start a riot. I like how the King James describes them. The King James says, certain lewd fellows of a baser sort. (laughs) So that's who who they recruited. So they riled everyone up. They traveled as a mob to the house of Jason where Paul was, but Paul had left. And so they drag Jason, the homeowner, before the authorities, and they make this statement. The men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. So let's just pause here and let's reflect on something. That is quite a testimony. So far, this team had only been to Philippi on the continent of Europe. Remember, they landed in Macedonia, went to Philippi. Philippi's located 100 miles away, 
And already, this team has the reputation of turning the world upside down. Now, Paul and his team explained the word clearly and compellingly. Friends, you and I must do the same. To turn the world upside down, first the word must turn us inside out. Now, there's a second challenge I see in our passage. Let's examine the word. So the next stop on their journey we see in verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night. It's like whenever Paul leaves the city, he goes by night, right, because he's in trouble. One time he's put over a wall in a basket, right? And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So in contrast to Thessalonica, Berea is off the beaten path. Berea was kind of like a retirement village. There were wealthy military, political, and educational leaders. And once again, the team immediately heads to the synagogue, right? To the Jew first, and then to the Greek. They preach the gospel. But notice what verse 11 says. These Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were true. That word noble means refined. It means open-minded. So I see a couple traits that made them stand out as noble. First, they received the word. They were eager. It has the idea of enthusiastic readiness. And notice also they received. That means to accept an offer by taking it to oneself. So they're eager, and then they take what they hear, and they they just love it. They're listening with rapt attention, and they are absorbing the truth. I've said that many times. I'll say it again about Edgewood. You come ready to hear God's word, and you want to absorb what God has for you. Notice, secondly, they examined the Scriptures daily. They're eager to receive the word, but they don't just accept it. They examine the evidence. The word examine refers to discerning, testing, scrutinizing, sifting, The word was used of an investigation, like a judicial investigation done for a trial. They were committed to get to the core of what was being said so they could determine whether or not it was true. Oh, would you observe it was a daily discipline? Not just something they did occasionally. This week I smiled as I reread the introduction to the Edgewood Statement of Faith. So if you go on our website and you look, well, what's Edgewood all about? What do we believe? Here's the very first sentence. This church holds the following statement of faith as being a summary of Christian doctrine whose authority consists only in its agreement with the Word of God. And then as you look at the doctrinal statement, all the things that we believe the Scriptures to teach about God the Father, about God the Son, about God the Holy Spirit, about salvation, the very first doctrine, the Scriptures. 
Here's what it says. We believe that the Holy Bible, consisting of the Old and New Testament Scriptures, was written by men, divinely inspired. It's a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, truth without any mixture of error for its matter, that it reveals the principles of God. And say this last part with me. And the final authority for all Christian faith and life. In the book of Acts, the preaching of God's truth transformed some, and we'll see again, and for others it stirred up trouble. So I'm in verses 12 and 13. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men, Verse 13, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too. So what did they do? They agitated and they stirred up the crowds. Preaching the gospel often leads to persecution. Every November, we give focused attention to how we can be praying for the persecuted church. We'll do that again in November. We're going to do it a week later than we normally do it, but we want to give our attention to that. Now, to avoid another riot, verses 14 and 15 tells us what the believers did. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. I came across a helpful blog post written by Kevin DeYoung. And he gave 10 ways to be a better Berean. I'm going to adapt this, change it somewhat, add a few things, and Give six ways that you and I can become more like a royal Berean and less like the rabble from Thessalonica. So here we go. Number one, listen to sermons with an open Bible. Here's why it's important for you to check what I say with what the Scriptures say. I work hard at being true to the Word, but I'm not infallible. I would never knowingly mislead you, but that doesn't mean I'm not capable of doing so. Let me say it like this. The best part of every sermon should be what you see in the text. Not my insight or my clever illustration. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. So it would be great, church, if you'd get in the habit of bringing your Bible with you, or if you're engaging online or, or on, on cozy, if you'd get your Bible and open it up and put it on your lap. Now, in order to help with that, you may want to sign up for our weekly sermon email. We send out the sermon manuscript every Friday afternoon. Along with that is a sheet for taking sermon notes, and I have a copy right here. There's a copy up on the screen. This hard copy is also available out at the resource kiosk. It may help you to take notes and stay engaged during the sermon time. Number two, be in God's Word Every day. The Bereans examine God's word daily. 
The only way to grow is to get God's word in your mind, in your heart, and then to live it out through your hands and through your feet. Now, if you say you don't have time, and we're all busy, let me gently say, maybe you should get up earlier or stay up a little later. Pastor Tim compiles a new Bible reading plan each month. Many of us use it. You can pick this up at the resource kiosk as well. Uh, Right now, Beth and I are using this. Many of you are. I just finished Philippians chapter 4 this morning. That was day 10. Tomorrow morning we'll be in the book of Colossians. If that would help you, many of us don't read our Bibles because we don't know where to read. This at least could be helpful. You can also get that on the website or the app. Several weeks ago, I received a call from an Edgewood member. She told me that she uses these Bible reading plans every month. And recently, during her time in God's Word, this is why she called, she said, I'm learning about God's heart for the poor, for the widow, for the orphan, for the underprivileged, and for missionaries. And she said, Pastor Brian, do you know of any missionary that my husband and I could support? We feel convicted to do that. Well, I could think of someone. I could think of many mission organizations in our community, but I thought of a single woman Her name is Shalom Warrington. She's involved in our mainspring ministry. She knows sign language, and God is calling her to go overseas and use sign language to reach the deaf community, and she's just starting out, and she needs support. And so I told her about Shalom, and she said, well, thank you so much. They connected, and now Shalom is being encouraged by this woman. So I called this woman this week to get permission to share this. When I called, I could tell I had interrupted her. And I said, I'm sorry, were you in the middle of something? And she said, well, I'm reading Philippians chapter 2, which is the passage for that morning, and it was 10 o'clock in the morning. See, for nearly five years... This woman has been reading the listed passage and then writing out the notes from the Life Application Study Bible. Reads the passage, and then she reads the notes in a study Bible, and she goes a step further. She writes out by hand all of those notes. I said, how many of those books do you have? And very humbly, she said, I've filled up 10 of those books. Here's one of the books right here. It's just filled with her handwriting. It's a running commentary on every passage that she's read in the past five years. I wasn't expecting that on the phone, so I said, "Uh, how, how long does that take you a day? And she said, two to three hours a day. And she said, sometimes it's shorter, and it's only an hour. When I tried to compliment her for what she's doing, she quickly said this, and I wrote this down. 
It's all for the glory of God. If you spend time in God's word, you'll become one of the most blessed people in the world. I'm privileged to be able to do this, she said. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. Mm. When I was on the phone with her, I asked if I could use her name. And she said, yeah, that'd be fine. Well, she came last night and handed me a note, and she said, this is what the note said, bottom of the note, please do not use my name. I don't want Satan to have a hold on my pride. Wow, where she learned that from being in God's Word. Number three, not only read God's Word daily, but go deep in the Scriptures. This week, Beth and I put carnitas in our crock pot. <laughs> we got home, the house just smelled, oh, it was fantastic. All the seasoning, and we pulled that pork out, and it just kind of fell apart. It was delicious. Why? It simmered all day. That's certainly better than if I would have cooked and put microwaved hot dogs on the table, right? So listen. Take the time to savor the scriptures. Read them and reflect upon them. Meditate upon them. Marinate in them. Search the scriptures. Don't just skim along the surface and check the box and go on with your day. You see, God works in our lives as we get his word in our lives. And he works more like a crockpot than a microwave. Sinclair Ferguson said it well. We're to work at Bible study. The scriptures do not disclose their riches to lazy minds and hearts. Anyone feeling convicted today or just me up here? So to help you go deeper, let me give a suggestion. Pick up a study Bible and read the notes. Look at the maps. Follow the cross-references. Another idea, we print this on the back of the Bible reading plan. It's an acrostic called Specs. When you're reading, ask yourself these questions. Is there a sin to be forsaken, a promise to be claimed, an example to be followed, a command to be obeyed? Is there a stumbling block or hindrance I need to avoid? Number four, approach the Bible with eager expectation. Uh, Some of us check our email often. Many of us check our social media feeds often. Why do we do that? We don't want to miss anything. Well, here's an idea. Instead of checking Facebook first thing when you wake up, put your face in God's book before you do anything else. So are you eager to hear from God? Do you want to grow in that? Well, get involved in some things that will help you go deeper in God's word. Like the Grandparenting Summit, we're going to look, what does the Bible say? Not what does culture say? Grandparents just spoil your kids. No, what does the Bible say? The Bible says to evangelize and disciple and help train your grandkids. Where do we learn that? In the word of God. 
If you're involved already in coming to a service, consider staying a little bit longer or coming earlier for one of our Sunday growth groups. We're kicking off some new electives this month. One is on evangelism, how to share your faith with confidence. Another one is called This is the Day. To do today what God has for us, not putting it off. Another elective that may be of interest to some of you is how to thrive in a step family. And then the fourth elective is a biblical guide to investing. We also have Bible studies that meet throughout the week. There's a Wednesday morning women's study. There's a Tuesday morning men's study. There's studies for young adults, for students, and adults throughout the week. We're kicking off a new group for young married couples as well. Number five, keep your guard up so you can spot error. It's just so important because there's so much error out there. We need the truth of the Bible if we hope to spot error. I'm told that when people work at a bank and they want to train them, especially cashiers, how to spot counterfeit money, they don't give them counterfeit money to study. They give them actual money. And they say, touch it. Smell it. Look at it. Become very familiar with what's true, and once you do, when a counterfeit comes, you'll be like, this doesn't feel right. This doesn't smell right. This doesn't look right. As an example of how insidious error is, I put together 10 common Christian cliches that, well, you'll have a hard time finding in the Bible, but we think they're in there somewhere. I'll go through them quickly. God helps those who help themselves. Or how about this one? Everyone is God's child. Not true. Only those who are born again are in God's family. How about this? God won't give you more than you can handle. Listen, he won't give you more than he can handle. Now, when you're going through temptation, for sure, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says God will provide a way out. God wants you to achieve all your dreams. Uh, Life's not about you. How about this? God wants you to be happy or heaven has gained another angel. Listen, humans don't become angels. This too shall pass. Follow your heart. That's not Bible. That's Disney. Or how about this? The devil made me do it. No, you chose to do it. And mom's sorry about this last one. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Number six, make sure the Bible is your final authority. Listen, if you ever hear yourself say something like this, I know what the Bible says, but whatever you say next, you need to immediately repent. People say that all the time. I know what the Bible says, but, but I just need to be happy. And so I'm going to do this. Listen, here's what we should say. I know what the Bible says, therefore, as hard as it is, I'm going to commit to gather, to grow, to give, and go with the gospel. As hard as it is, I'm going to forgive and not allow a root of bitterness to grow up. Now, let me circle back to the American worldview inventory. This study revealed that there is a very common worldview. In fact, it's the most common worldview among Americans. It's syncretism. It's like this disparate worldview elements commonly called moralistic therapeutic 
deism. It's like a smorgasbord, like a buffet. We take a little of that, a little bit of this, so it looks like this. God's distant. People are supposed to be good. Purpose of life is to be happy. There are no moral absolutes. Good people go to heaven, and God places very limited demands on people. People. Friends, is there any error growing in the soil of your soul? I'm challenged by something Stephen Cole said in a sermon on this passage. He said, many have a false idea that there are two optional tracks in the Christian life. Here's one track, the committed discipleship track. Well, this track is for the gung-ho types who give up the comforts of life. They live without many of the gadgets and toys the rest of us enjoy. They give large portions of their income to the cause of Christ. They devote themselves and their time totally to Jesus. Then he says this, If that track is a bit much for you, well, then you can choose the comfortable Christian track. Comfortable Christians usually go to church on weekends unless one of their hobbies has a big event that day. They give a bit to help out the church. They volunteer some of their time when time permits. For them, Christ and the church make life more pleasant. But Christ and the church aren't the center of life, touching every area. These folks wouldn't think of being inconvenienced for the sake of the gospel. But then he says this, but I never find Jesus offering this second track to any of his followers. Friends, notice how much the Lord can accomplish with just the few committed followers. Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy were just four men traveling in an almost pagan, completely pagan world. They left behind fledgling churches that were decisively in the minority. And yet, they upset the entire world for Jesus Christ. So to turn the world upside down, the word must first turn us inside out. And let's commit to do that, church, by explaining the word, knowing it well enough that we can explain it, and secondly, by examining the word. In 1961, 25 students got together and they drew up a Christian manifesto for world evangelization. In part, this is what they wrote. Literal adherence to the principles laid down by Jesus Christ would, without a doubt, result in worldwide revolution, a revolution motivated by love, a revolution executed by love, and a revolution culminating in love. Listen to what they write. These are students. We are only a small group of Christian young people. Yet we have determined by God's grace to live our lives according to the revolutionary teachings of our master. Within the sphere of absolute literal obedience to his commands lies the power that will evangelize the world. Outside this sphere is the nauseating, insipid Christianity of our day. We have committed ourselves in reckless abandonment to the claims of Christ on our blood-bought lives. We have no rights. Every petty personal desire must be subordinated to the supreme task of reaching the world for Christ. We are debtors. We must not allow ourselves to be swept into the soul-binding curse of modern-day materialistic thinking and living. Christians have been willing long enough to forsake all. The time has come and is passing when we must forsake all. 
They continue, the propagation of the faith we hold supreme. Christ is worthy of our all. We must be ready to suffer for him and count it joy, to die for him and count it gain. In light of the present spiritual warfare, anything less than absolute dedication must be considered. This is incredible writing. Insubordination to our master and mockery of his cause. This is our commitment, and we will press forward until every person has heard the gospel. We will soon be in many different countries engaged in combat with all the forces of darkness. We look beyond the thousands to the millions, beyond the cities to the countries. These countries will be reached for Christ no matter the cost. The ultimate victory is ours. Friends, that commitment became the bedrock belief of Operation Mobilization, founded 60 years ago by a graduate of Moody Bible Institute named George Verwer. Operation Mobilization now has more than 5,000 workers, representing more than 100 nationalities, taking God's unchanging truth to literally millions every year. 